You're listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. Greetings to all my fellow servants of the risen King. Christ is risen indeed. Friends, uh, our recent meditations on our Lord's final words have put me in remembrance of something said by the great Apostle Paul. Uh, Of course, Paul is that missionary evangelist who, more than anyone else in the New Testament, sets the standard for us of carrying out the Great Commission. And these are the words that I have been thinking of recently. He's writing to the Corinthian church when he says them, and he says, Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And, of course, those are famous words of Paul, but they come to my mind uh, in connection with our reflections on the Great Commission uh, in light of what would seem to be the folly, at least from a worldly perspective, of what Jesus actually demands of his humble disciples. Uh, Not only does he leave them with a seemingly impossible task, that of making disciples of all nations, bringing all the nations into uh, loyal service to Christ as their king, but he also leaves them with seemingly useless tools to accomplish this commission. He says, I want you to do this by means of, wait for it, water and words. He says, baptizing them and teaching them. A conventional wisdom of men would say that if you want to advance a kingdom, you're going to need more firepower than that, especially if you have global dominion uh, as your ambition. But brothers and sisters, as Paul said, the weakness of God is stronger than men. And Hasn't church history shown that the faithful use of the word and the sacraments by the church have been mighty indeed in the conquering even of whole nations for Christ? And I would actually say that the very possibility of fulfilling the Great Commission lies in the power of these very weapons of kingdom advancement that Christ has given to the church of course, always, uh, with his blessing. So today's podcast, uh, as we continue, uh, takes up the first of these tools of dominion, that of baptism. Now, uh, there's been an ocean of ink spilled on the theology of this sacrament, and I've actually already spoken of baptism in this podcast already, uh, that in connection with our covenant children. But folks, today I'm interested in looking at Christian baptism from a particular angle, not merely as a sign of the covenant, but now as a tool of the kingdom. I'll be trying to unpack here that baptism is a way that Christ both claims his lordship over men and indeed uh, a way that he gains that lordship over them. Nothing, I submit to you, but a robust 
robust view of the potency of baptism can explain the key place that it has uh, in the words of the Great Commission. Once again, I'm sharing with you here from a sermon series that I preached back in 2010 on those final words of our Lord, and I trust that it will be a blessing again uh, to all who hear it here. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. These are our Lord's final words to his disciples, and surely they would have been unforgettable words to his disciples. They set, after all, a staggering agenda for us to fulfill. Jesus is clothed with all authority, his resurrection appearances to his disciples, and as the King of kings and Lord of lords, he calls for a global conquest the nations on his behalf. All men are to be made like these men, these 11 men who stand before him in submission to his lordship. The means that they're to use, though, well, they're radically new. This advancing of a kingdom, this global conquest, that much is not new. The Jews longed for this. Jesus calls for conquest, not by the sword and the bow, as in the days of the kings of Israel, those tools that even many Jews to that very day itched to put back to work. Instead, they were to use the means of water and of words to bring the nations into submission to Christ. So they're not only given a seemingly impossible task, they're given seemingly useless tools to accomplish it. Or were they? Uh, Just as the immensity of all this must have been sinking into their heads, Jesus adds, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Perhaps this isn't so, so impossible as it seems. Perhaps these tools of dominion, water, words, were not so impotent as they might initially appear Perhaps they would actually accomplish far more than any horse or chariot or massive gathering of the same ever did. The days of Israel's glory, kingdom days. Perhaps Jesus is saying to these men that he would be at work through them in gaining the submission of the nations through these otherwise seemingly futile tools of water and words. Brothers and sisters, this morning we're going to return 
to look more closely at these tools of dominion. We only paused last week long enough to recognize that these are very new. We saw the significance of a new strategy for advancing of the kingdom, the conquest of the nations. But now we need to turn and look more carefully at the tools. And we're going to just take up the first this morning, this tool of water or of baptism. Well, first of all, uh, defend our thinking and speaking of baptism as a tool of dominion. And then we'll unpack that expression in these two ways. We'll look at baptism as the means by which Christ claims dominion over men and nations. And then we'll look, thirdly, at baptism as the means by which Christ gains dominion over men and nations. So the first thing we need to do is defend this way of thinking of baptism as a tool of dominion. In order to look at the, in order to see that, you need to look carefully at the Great Commission as familiar as it is to you. You need to see something you may not have ever seen before. You recognize that Jesus, as he gives his disciples things to do, seems to be giving them three things to do. He has three commands for them. I take go and make disciples as the first. That's the first command that he gives. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And then he adds that, baptizing them and teaching them. That's two and three. Three things that he gives them to do. But it's the relationship between these three things that we need to ascertain at this moment. The making of disciples by the sense of it as well as the structure of it grammatically is obviously the main deal. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations and in the Greek, just like in your English translations there in your lap, those second and third commands are subordinate to that main one because they're put in terms of participles. Go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching. Now, maybe you have thought about this already before. But you need to make sure that it's before your eyes as we continue, because what Jesus is doing is indicating that the way to make disciples is to baptize them and teach them. Those two things, water and words, are effective means of discipling the nations. This immense goal that they've been given of making disciples of all the nations, they're to do by means of these two things. Perhaps you say, well, that's obvious enough. Well, brothers and sisters, it's not obvious to everyone who studies the Scriptures and understands something from the Bible about baptism. Even before we go any further, I hope you can see that something is being said about baptism and its importance that goes beyond the view of many in our day. Jesus is speaking of baptism as a means of making disciples. But perhaps you're aware that many Christians see baptism as nothing more than a marker of disciples that have already been made. Can I say it again? Jesus speaks of baptism as a means of making disciples. Many of us in the church today think of baptism merely as a marker of those who've already become disciples. 
I'll illustrate with one of my least favorite parts of seminars and conferences. Seminars and conferences typically have the obligatory name tag that you're to put somewhere on your person and introduces you as if you didn't have the ability to do so yourself by giving your name. Now, I have hang-ups about that because I actually like the whole ritual of saying my name is Nathan Trice and your name and so on and not a few times when I have actually been making eye contact with one who's wearing such a name badge and I'm stubbornly refusing to read it because I want them to tell me, but I digress. Uh, I especially deplore perky name tags. Hello, my name is, and then you write in your name. The name tag, some of you men may have worn some, women may have worn some even this past week as a part of being at seminars and conferences. The name tag that you wear has nothing to do with how you came to be who you are, does it? My name tag doesn't have anything to do with how I became Nathan Trice. It's just a marker of what I already am. It's just telling people what is already true about me. Many people have that view of baptism. It's, so, it's simply a marker. Hello, my name is Christian. My baptism functions simply to tell you what I already am. It has nothing to do with how I got to be what I am. Now, can you see how such a wimpy I don't know what else to call it, view of baptism, doesn't fit with this great commission. Jesus doesn't say, make disciples, and when you have, make sure you mark them so everybody else will know what's happened. He says, make disciples, baptizing and teaching. Baptism is not just a ritual that symbolizes discipleship. It's, along with teaching, a way of making disciples. Baptism, for that matter, isn't simply something individuals do to say something to other people. It's something the church does. You are baptized passively. The church is here in the Great Commission being given this holy ritual in order to make disciples. It's not merely a marker of disciples already made. It's one of the means of making disciples. In other words, baptism is a tool of dominion. It's a tool that God, His Son, Lord Jesus, is putting in the hands of His church. And it's a potent weapon that enables us to fulfill a staggering commission. It's as if Jesus says, I've given you the seemingly impossible task of global conquest, making disciples of all the nations, but I'm giving you powerful tools to accomplish that conquest. For starters, I'm giving you baptism. Now let's further unpack this. This is why we are right to call baptism a tool of dominion, one of two that Jesus provides in this great commission. Let's unpack this by looking first at baptism as the means by which Christ claims dominion over men and nations. Secondly, when Jesus refers here to baptism, what would be helpful to you to think of is not just the mechanics of it, 
a kind of washing with water that one person does for another person. It would also be helpful for you, helpful for you to remember two things about baptism in Jesus' ministry thus far. The first of those two things you ought to remember is that Jesus himself submitted to baptism. This was at the commencement of his formal ministry, his messianic work. Matthew 3 recorded that for us. There was a sense in which Jesus did not need to be baptized, but in order to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus submitted himself to baptism. The second thing you need to remember about baptism is that all of Jesus' followers, his disciples, were also baptized at the commencement of their service to him. We read in Luke chapter 3, verse 8, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? You hear the two things that Jesus is speaking on the Great Commission? Baptize them and teach them. They came back to be baptized, and he gives them an answer. He said to them, Collect more, no more than you're authorized to do. In both of those cases, Jesus' baptism and the baptism of those who became his loyal disciples, baptism was an initiation into a life of service. Jesus was baptized as an initiation into his service, his obedience to the Father. It would be very profitable for us to reflect on the humiliation, the humbling of himself that Jesus did in his baptism. But the baptisms of those who came to Jesus, the tax collectors, the sinners, that was a baptism that initiated them into obedience to Christ, to Jesus as the King, the Messiah. So those who were being baptized, we know this already from the Gospels leading up to this point, those who were being baptized were acknowledging the authority of the one in whose name they were baptized. That's what it meant to be baptized in Jesus' ministry. When they submitted themselves to baptism, they were submitting to the one in whose name they were baptized. And conversely, as the disciples, on Jesus' behalf, baptized disciples, they were asserting Christ's claim of authority over those whom they baptized. When they baptized in his name, they were baptizing them into this relationship of obedience to their Lord. Now, we don't have time this morning to look at what is explosively significant about the name that Jesus says his disciples are to baptize people into. It's a threefold name. And many of you will know this is one of, if not the clearest statement in all the scriptures of the Holy Trinity. We just might have to come back to that. We might. But what you should not fail to see, just for our purposes this morning, is this. Jesus, in saying, baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in speaking that way, is placing his authority on the same level as that of God the Father and of the Holy Spirit. When you baptize in my name, you're baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Spirit as well. This was a breathtaking moment for the disciples to hear coming from Jesus' mouth, those words. When Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me, he meant it, didn't he? 
So much so that he takes his name, places it with the name of the Father and of the Spirit. So baptism is a means by which men acknowledge, if they're being baptized, or men assert, if they're doing the baptism, the authority of Jesus Christ over that person's life. And it's the initiation into a life of service, servitude to a rightful Lord. You know that that relationship in the Scripture is often spoken of in terms of a covenant. The risk of drawing too much together in one moment, let me simply say this is why we speak of baptism as a sign and seal of the covenant. It's a sign and seal of this relationship in which those baptized are bound to obedience to God, the triune God. And if you were to keep in mind the context of covenants in the scripture, and especially the context of covenants in the relationships between nations, you would find it all the more significant that Jesus gives this particular sign and seal of the covenant as a way of making disciples. I've mentioned this to you before. Let me remind you, covenants in Bible times were made in varied ways. They were particularly made by kings. Kings made covenants as a way of advancing their rule. This is uh, one of those observations that's made universally acknowledged by students who study the times of the Scripture's writing, Old Testament and New Testament as well. If a king wanted to be a king of kings, he often resorted to offers of peace, terms of submission. And if such a king were truly a great king and a good king, and the king to whom he offered those terms of peace was a wise king, there would very often be a covenant made. The covenant, in essence, bound that king of kings to protect that lesser king, and it bound that lesser king and all of his nation to serve that greater king. Some of you will know that arrangement was a vassal arrangement. Does that help you? Understand why baptism, along with teaching, is singled out by Jesus as a tool of dominion in this great commission. Jesus, through baptisms administered by his servants, would be staking his claim over men and nations. Our confession speaks to that element of The sacraments and baptism particularly staking a claim when it speaks this way. Baptism puts a visible difference between those that belong to the church and the rest of the world. And solemnly engages them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. Now, it's very important for you to understand this aspect of baptism as a tool of dominion, that it stakes a claim to understand, quite frankly, why it's administered the way it is in the book of Acts. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Acts chapter 2. This is the first time the disciples really get to put into practice the commission that they receive in Matthew 28. It's the first big opportunity, if you will, to implement the Great Commission strategy 
This, as you know, is the passage that refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit and the fulfillment of Christ's promise. And as a result of that, Peter gets his big moment. This former fisherman gets to preach the sermon of his life. And the sermon's recorded for us. We'll not read the whole sermon. It begins verse 14 and continues on through majority of this passage. But let's look down at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, those who heard the sermon by Peter, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You hear what he's doing? He's simply heeding the terms of the Great Commission. You guys want to become disciples? Here's what you've got to do. You've got to repent, and you've got to be baptized. And then jump ahead to verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, I know this is a familiar passage, but have you ever envisioned the baptism of 3,000 people? I have tried to. If it happened right there in Jerusalem, there was a lot of running and fetching. Water where it could, ever could be found. If, it, if they went out to the river, then uh, so much the better. Somebody was exhausted by the end of this day, you can well imagine. It sounds like a veritable water world that particular day. 3,000 people baptized. And I'm emphasizing to you this morning, they were baptized immediately. What are we supposed to do? Well, you have to repent. And you have to be baptized. And so immediately they were. Now, there have been many in the history of the church since those days that have, I think, tried to be wiser than the apostles in their administration of baptism. At times in the history of the church, it's become, baptism has become not the uh, initiation ceremony into discipleship. It's been the graduation ceremony. People delayed their baptism, or they were delayed by the church from being baptized until they had already been taught all that Jesus commanded us. But that's precisely the opposite order that Jesus gives. Baptism is the initiation. It's the commencement of the life of discipleship. I rather think that when Jesus, I'm jumping ahead to next week, but when Jesus speaks about teaching him everything I've commanded you, he has a very long process in mind. Lifelong process. Baptism comes at the beginning, not at the end of that process. And the reason the disciples made apostles were ready to baptize so quickly, and you see the pattern running throughout the rest of the book of Acts, immediately baptize. It's because they saw baptism as Jesus staking his claim over people's lives. Baptism was the means by which they were bound to the Lordship of Christ. And they were therefore bound to listen to all that would follow their baptisms by way of teaching. This understanding, let me say before we move on, is very vital to explaining why we Presbyterians baptize our children at the beginning 
of their lives. This understanding, the Great Commission, is very important for understanding why we practice infant baptism. We believe that Christ, the King, has claimed sovereign rights over our children as well as us, and that he stakes that claim in their baptisms. These two tools of dominion that we're taking up today, baptism next week, Lord willing, the word, they could not better fit what you are doing, parents, in your homes. You've submitted your children for baptism, and now you're teaching them all that Christ has commanded. Baptism is what obligates your children in a high and holy way to then listen to what they're taught about how to fulfill their obligations. This also, may I say before I move on, this also is why if you've never been baptized this morning, you need to be baptized. Baptism is a sign of Christ's lordship over your life. It's the means by which he extends to you the benefits of being under his lordship, by which you're made his vassal. If you don't have the claim of Christ on you by baptism today, there is another who is claiming you. There's another Lord. There's another prince. Another ruler, it's either servitude to Satan or it's servitude to the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be baptized. Come into this relationship of authority on his part and submission on your part. This relationship of service on your part and protection on his part. Baptism. Jesus is giving to his servants who are going to fulfill this impossible commission seemingly is relevant for the making of disciples of nations because it's the means by which Christ claims his dominion over men and nations. That's why baptism is a tool of dominion. But thirdly, We need to add this. Baptism is a means not only by which Christ claims dominion over men and nations. It is also the means by which he gains dominion over men and nations. If all we said was what we'd said thus far about baptism being a claim of Christ, we would not have said enough about baptism as a tool of dominion. The disciples who heard these words recognized Jesus was saying far more than that. Listen carefully, please. When Christ calls his disciples to baptize the nations, he's not just telling them to plant flags. Mere claims, like settlers from Europe would plant flags in the new world, a claim that that may or may not have the power to back it up. Jesus calls upon his disciples to baptize the nations and then promises to be with them in this. He's promising to make them successful. That what he claims will actually be gained 
impart through water, through baptism. Let me ask you the question, how does Christ gain dominion in the earth? Does he gain dominion through whips and chains? Through swords and spears? By outward coercion, that's the way the kingdoms of the world gain dominion. Truly not. He does it by exercising a power in the earth and a power over men that no mere man, no army of men has ever been capable of doing. He exercises his dominion in the earth by transforming men from the inside, by breaking their hearts, by making them repentant of their rebellion, by forgiving them and indwelling their hearts to make them faithful servants. That's how he gains his dominion. The disciples would have understood Jesus when he says, make disciples of all the nations, that he was inviting them. Indeed, he was commanding them to take salvation to all the nations. It's a saving dominion that they're to go and claim and to gain was grace that would bring about this dominion. Brothers and sisters, that's why we Presbyterians use this expression. Baptism is a means of grace. It doesn't just stake a claim. It gains what is claimed. Now, the fact that the disciples would have connected this, baptizing the nations with the salvation of the nations, is clear from the way they speak and the rest of the New Testament. And we'll turn once again to the book of Acts. I read just a moment ago, verse 38. And I'd like that to be under your eye one more time. Acts 2, verse 38. Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now you need to watch carefully what Peter does. Peter says, you must repent in order to be forgiven. We would seriously err if we overlooked the role of repentance in gaining forgiveness. But Peter also tells them they're to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. We would likewise be in error if we overlooked the role of baptism in bringing the forgiveness of sins. What the confession speaks of as baptism becoming an effectual means of salvation is embodied here. When the Holy Spirit is at work in baptism and Christ's blessing is on that baptism, our confession says, that makes baptism an effectual means of salvation. Now, you will know that Peter, in his letter, 
says something that's a head-scratcher for many. He speaks of baptism as something which saves us. Peter has nothing more, nothing less in mind than what he says here in this first sermon to put into practice that great commission. He has nothing more, nothing less in mind than what we say in the Nicene Creed and which is repeated in the Westminster Confession, that baptism is for the remission of sins. Jesus not only stakes his claim, he gains dominion, in part through baptism. Brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully, please. We're speaking of the efficacy of baptism. It's a tool of dominion. To speak of the efficacy of baptism, hear me carefully, is not to speak of the automatic efficacy of baptism. You know what I mean by that? Many have come to the conclusion that to speak in any sense of baptism as being efficacious, as a means of grace unto the remission of sins, is to speak of it as automatically and invariably efficacious to those ends. This, the New Testament makes clear, is false. Just reading through the book of Acts will make this clear. There are many people who are baptized in the book of Acts who prove not to be inheritors of eternal life. Uh, One of them comes very quickly, actually, in the account. His name is Simon. And he's baptized with all the rest. And then he becomes something for the church of of an iconic figure, for someone who is brought into the church through baptism, and yet his heart had not been, by all appearances, truly changed. We were to suggest, if we were to think that all who are baptized will be saved, we're gravely mistaken. It's very clear from the scripture that's not the case. If we were to say that those who are saved are always saved at the moment of their baptism, that too would be a grave mistake. Uh, just to give one of my favorite examples of this, the book of Acts records very beautifully the experience of Lydia, the seller of purple. She hears the preaching of the gospel, and the scripture speaks of her heart being opened. I think it's a beautiful way of speaking of the grace of regeneration. And only after that is she baptized. Salvation began in her before baptism came. To speak of the efficacy of baptism is not to speak of it as automatically Efficacious. Those are important qualifications to make. And you know why, don't you? There have been many who have gotten in full view of the Scripture's teaching of the potency of baptism as a tool of dominion, that they've come to sync together in, in some automatic, invariable way the administration of that sacrament with salvation. The word we use for that is sacerdotalism. Tradition of the church that we associate with that is Roman Catholicism. These are qualifications exceedingly important to make. But let me say to you, brothers and sisters, we may not do as many Protestants have done. As a result of those qualifications, have little room in our minds and hearts for any efficacy in baptism. 
Baptism is a tool of dominion. Jesus gives it to the church in order to gain disciples. Is the word of God, when it preaches, always invariably automatically efficacious? You know better than that. As powerful as it is, God is free to work as He pleases. We use this tool, but it's always Him, by His Spirit, with the blessing of Christ, that makes the tool efficacious. But you have no doubt that the Word of God preached is efficacious. Neither should you have any doubt that baptism is efficacious. As God works, according to His good pleasure, in and through it. Our confession is magnificent in this area. It defines baptism as a sign and seal of engrafting into Christ, regeneration, remission of sins. And then after making the qualifications that I've already made, very painstakingly, it goes on to assert the efficacy of this tool. Listen. By the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or of infants, as that grace belongeth to, according to the counsel of God's own will, in his appointed time. Now, may I say to you, I think the biggest problem that people have with this Presbyterian view of baptism is this very honest and understandable question. How can something that's efficacious in my salvation happen before my salvation or conversely after my salvation? I dare say, I I think this puts a finger on that most confusing part of a balanced biblical view of baptism. If I was born again before I was baptism, how did baptism have anything to do with that? Conversely, if I was regenerated after I was baptized, why does baptism have anything to do with my regeneration? It's not admittedly easy to understand. Brothers and sisters, we have a category for this. It's the cross. And it's efficacy in the lives of all the true people of God. The cross was efficacious for salvation for those who lived long before it. Was it not? The cross is the means by which Abraham was saved. Moses was saved. And Isaiah was saved. It was the means by which those men were saved. But they were saved before it even happened. Likewise, it's the means by which you were saved. It happened a long time ago. You have already, in that category, you've already come to be not just resigned, but gratefully giving glory to God. He is not bound by time and space in using the means of salvation. The biblical view of baptism 
seems to me has something of this principle at work in it. Baptism is a means by which saving grace is conveyed to those who are truly God's people. But God is free to apply that grace whenever he wants and to whomever he pleases. Let me tell you what this means practically for you who are baptized and who are genuine Christians, regenerated, indwelt by the Spirit, servants of the King. If those things are true of you, and you've received that grace through multiple means, one of them is your baptism. Christ has, in part through that, gained his dominion in your heart. That's why your baptism is rightly precious to you. This also means if you're here this morning and you want to be forgiven, you want to be restored to a right relationship with God, you need to repent of your sins and you need to be baptized. You need the water of baptism, among other things. God is free to save you apart from baptism. He's free, for that matter, to save you apart from the Word. But He has designated these His tools, His means of bringing grace to you. Could it be of anyone here this morning that you remain resistant to the authority of God in your life because you haven't submitted yourself to baptism? Baptism is a means by which Christ claims his dominion over men and nations. It's the means by which he gains dominion over men and nations. I dare say that will give us enough to think about and talk about over Sunday dinner. Brothers and sisters, I'm fully aware that this tool Christ has given his church has proven to be a very controversial one, sadly, among those who called to wield it. I cannot commend to you highly enough our own confession. And having a robust view of baptism without having a nakedly ritualistic view of baptism. I think this is the genius of Presbyterianism, though many Presbyterians haven't grasped the genius of it. Let me conclude by backing up with you a moment and looking at what would have, again, been staggeringly obvious to these disciples as they stood there hearing these words. I'm trying to capture it, actually, in the way that I've framed these points. Baptism is the means by which Christ claims dominion. It's the means by which Christ gains dominion. You need to recognize that Jesus is summoning these men to a kind of conquest that's grounded and fueled by radical faith. Because he's sending them to do this work of global conquest with, don't forget, water. 
we're talking about water. At Matthew's OPC, it's tap water. Hopefully warmed sufficiently for the sensibilities of young disciples. For many parts of the world, it was dirty river water. I have no doubt nowadays it's bottled water. Many circumstances of duress. But my point is, it's water, folks. It's washing as common and as humble a ritual as your families last night, this morning engaged in one member of your family washing another. Getting wet. That's how, in part, disciples we made. What are you talking about, Jesus? The state of wetness does not seem to us to be particularly redemptive in its potential. And that's all for a purpose, brothers and sisters. Jesus is retaining to himself all the glory for the conquest of the nations. He sends us out armed with water so that when men fall before the water and the words of Christ, it will be obvious that he himself is Conquering men and nations. That's what you should think of. Among no doubt many other things profitable to think of when you see a baptism. You should think the king is on the march. His power is going to be exerted or there will be no success in this global conquest. Lest we get any of the glory, he tells us, you make disciples of the nations with water. Amen. You've been listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice, a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. If you've been blessed by today's podcast, consider sharing it with someone you know. And thank you for joining us.